None of the shops were open, all the businesses were closed, the, the government offices were closed. And so all the people of the town packed up picnic lunches and they came to sit on the hill and look down and watch what they thought was going to be you know, a decisive union victory. It's going to be an easy deal. We're going to sit on the lunch on the lawn and we're going to watch this battle and uh, we're going to watch the union soldiers kick butt. And initially, things went as expected. And through the trees, they couldn't see super well, but they were getting reports that everything was going strong, that, that the Union soldiers were, were advancing against General Stonewall Jackson. What they didn't know, however, was that the Confederate soldiers had divided into three different forces, and they were all converging their full force of their attack at that moment around the Union soldiers. And in an instant, the battle completely turned. And the Union soldiers were retreating in terror, and they were stumbling over these bystanders, <clears throat> these spectators, and they're essentially trampling them as they're being chased up the hill by the Confederate soldiers. Some of those who were sitting there eating their lunches were killed, some were taken captive. And it's just such an interesting thing because they thought that they were coming to just sit on the lawn and, and have a nice picnic lunch as they witnessed a little scrimmage that would obviously end with a Union victory. And instead, what they saw was um, terror and defeat and the beginning of what was going to be a long, bloody, terrible war. And I share that with you because I think that it does a good job. It serves to illustrate the dangers of a passive approach to war. And I fear that the experience of those spectators at the Battle of Bull Run may end up being the same experience of many of those who profess Christ. They pack up their picnic lunches on Sunday, they go to church and think, I'm going to engage in the scrimmage for an hour, and then I'm going to go and be on my merry way, not knowing that you can't, you can't escape the battle. It's coming for you. You can't sit on the sidelines. You think you can. You think you could sit there, but... If that happens, you're going to get trampled. You're going to get shot. It's not how the battle plays out. So that's what we're talking about today is the battle in the Christian life. And no doubt, in, uh, in the most ultimate sense, for sure, the war has already been won, right? Christ has conquered sin. He's conquered death. Victor is sure. The victory is secure. But that doesn't mean that there's not many long, hard, painful battles in front of us. And in fact, the Bible promises us that there will be. This temporal life that we're living in, gang, this life is war, and in war, complacency is not an option. Right? A complacent soldier is a dead soldier. And so I have as my primary objective today uh, in mind, my goal here is just to remind you, and honestly to remind myself, that we are in a fight for our lives, that it's deadly serious, and that the ramifications of it are eternal. There are eternal consequences for all of our temporal actions. And so in our first session, what I hope to do is just kind of give a big picture overview, a survey of the concept of Christian warfare. And um, I'm gonna hit a whole lot of scripture verses in, in the first one here. So don't feel like you have to try to look them all up as we go. If we're gonna camp out at one, I'll let you know ahead of time. And then in the second session, I want to talk about the dangers, because we are engaged in this war, the dangers of feeling comfortable in complacency. Okay? So that's where we're headed. Um, 
as a background to set the stage and in case there is any doubt in any of your minds that we are engaged in a battle for our souls, what I want to do is just kind of read you a sampling of verses, not going into any of them. I just want to set the stage so you acknowledge that um, I didn't pull this out of thin air, okay? That I, I haven't made this up, that the Bible is clear about this topic that we're going to talk about. So let me read through some of those. I suspect many of them will be familiar to you. <clears throat> Ephesians 6.12 For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 2 Corinthians 10.3 For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. 1 Timothy 1.18 this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies made concerning you, that by them you war the good warfare. James 4.1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Romans 7.23. I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner. 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as strangers and aliens to abstain from fleshly lusts which make war against your soul. That's what Chris was just talking about. We are strangers and aliens in this land. So that's just to set the stage. And with that in mind, what I'd like to do is go to the Lord for a few minutes because it'll make me feel a lot better as we move forward. So pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father God, uh, thank you so much. Thank you for the victory we have in Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for brothers in Christ to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, towards devotion to you. Lord, uh, I feel like the, the boy bringing the, the loaves and the fishes to, to feed a feast and have very little to offer, but I know that you can do great things with very little. And so God, I ask for your Holy Spirit to come to quicken the words of your scripture in the hearts and the minds of all these men and in my own heart, my own mind, that you would make them new, fresh, impactful, and that we wouldn't walk away from here just as smarter sinners, but as holy saints, that you would use these words to transform us. I ask that in the powerful and effective name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Message number one, the war against our souls. Three points that I want to make here. Um, number one, I want to talk about the stakes. What's at stake in the war? What are the consequences here that we're fighting for? Number two, I want to talk about the enemies in the war. If we're going to engage in battle, we've got to know who it is that we're fighting against, right? And number three, we're going to talk about the weapons and the strategies of our warfare. So the stakes, the enemies and the weapons and strategies. That's where we're headed. We'll start off with the stakes. And as we do that, let me just ask you, how often do you wake up in the morning recognizing that you are engaged in a battle for your soul? Is that something that's on your radar? Do you consider that as you roll out of bed and your feet hit the ground first thing in the morning, the enemies of your soul are converging upon you and they seek to destroy you? And we'll look at it more closely later, what those enemies are, but just by way of introduction, I've, I've broken it down, and essentially we've got two main enemies for our souls. One is the fleshly desires within, and the other is the spiritual forces of wickedness without. So the lust of the flesh from the inside, and the spiritual forces of wickedness from the outside. 
And gang, the, the stakes in this war couldn't possibly be higher. So let's work through a few verses that help us to, to demonstrate that, that show just how high the stakes are and what the consequences are if we succumb to the enemies of our souls, if we join that side of the table, all right? Starting with 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. This is a familiar one, I'm sure. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to destroy. And guys, as I read these verses, I would just, I would ask you to consider them afresh. Ask yourself, do these verses actually mean what they say? Or have I just sort of pushed them to the side and said, you know, uh, I read it, but these actually are verses for different people. These are verses for a different time in history. This isn't really about me. Don't let yourself think that. As I read them, ask yourselves the question, do you believe Peter's admonition? Do you believe that you have an adversary who is the devil? Do you believe that he and his forces are prowling around seeking to destroy you, seeking to destroy me? Is that on your radar? And ask yourself, if Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would have bothered to mention this if it wasn't a legitimate concern, if it wasn't a mortal danger? Seems unlikely, right? What was that verse? That first verse is 1 Peter, um, I lost it already, 5, 8, 9. Next verse is James 4, verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. How friendly are you with the world? That's not that hard, right? It's not that hard to get friendly with the world. Is your life driven primarily by the influence of God or primarily by the influence of the world? Or are you trying to thread the needle and do both? What, what's the content of your thinking? Where are your desires? Where are your hopes? Where do you take your risks? Are they in the temporal or, or are they in the eternal? And where's the line between the two? Right? It doesn't, he doesn't give us that line. It's just a binary choice here. You can be a friend of the world, or you can be an enemy of God. And, and James says, look, you want to get cozy with the world, have at it. Go for it. Just know that in doing that, you are being hostile towards God, and you've made yourself his enemy. Those are serious verses, guys. I don't know if that does anything to you. That scares me a little bit. Jesus said something very similar. Matthew 6, 24, this one you all know. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And yet, almost all of us think, mm, I want to be the first guy to prove that wrong. I can do it, right? I'm the one. Friendship with the world, hostility towards God, strong statements. Okay, Romans 8. Uh, we're going to look at 5 through 8. Uh, now let's just do 5 and 6. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. So what we've got so far is if your mind is set on the flesh, you're an enemy of God, and the mind set on the flesh is death. And so I'll just say again, the stakes in this battle couldn't possibly be more serious. Devoured by the devil, enemies of God, death. And if these verses don't create at least some amount of introspection in you, some degree of holy fear, then guys, I would, I would submit to you that 
you're in danger. And I would, I would also give you for your consideration 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The battle is real, stakes are high, and if we're going to fight, we need to identify who the enemies are. So that's what we'll talk about next, but just I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Any questions or comments so far on the stakes? Are we together? Yeah? Okay. All right. Let's then talk about the enemies. So, as I alluded to earlier, um, with all of this, there are nuances. We could probably break it apart deeper and further if you want, but I'm trying to go big picture, okay? So, I see there are essentially two primary enemies to our souls. One, the desires of the flesh within, and two are the spiritual forces of wickedness without. So we'll take them one at a time, and we'll start with the flesh. And I'm going to give you a couple of verses here that uh, will help us to see that. The first one is 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. That's pretty clear. It, it, fairly unambiguous statement there, right? Romans 8, 7. We did that already, but the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. Galatians 5, 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. So what, what we've got there in those sampling of verses is two clearly defined forces. We've got God and the Spirit on the one side, and then we've got flesh on the other side. And it's very clear that these two parties are at odds, that the flesh and its lusts are at war with the Spirit and with your soul. And again, again no middle ground, binary choices that he's giving us here, strong, absolute language throughout. So let's, let's uh, I was going to say flesh that out. Let's flesh out the flesh. <laughs> what is the flesh? Um, as it's used in these verses, and you guys know it's used different ways in the Bible, but as it pertains to this, this dark thing, this, this lust of the flesh that we're talking about, the flesh is that part of you that desires things which are contrary to God. And those desires, they are innate. Right? They are hardwired within us. We are born with them in place. But just as a side note, let's, let's remember that that's not the way it always was. Right? When God created man, he created man in his image, and man was sinless. And he created a garden for man to live in, and what did God say about it? It was very good. But then, of course, you guys know the rest of the story that follows there. Satan took those good desires that God had placed in man, desires for things like food, for beauty, for wisdom, and he twisted them, and he tweaked them, and he pointed them away from God toward the one single thing that God had prohibited, which was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you remember what it said there about the fruit is it was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable to make one wise. Those weren't bad desires. It's just that when they were exercised in the one area that God had prohibited by the lies of Satan, that's what the sin was. That's when everything fell apart. And so Adam took the fruit, he ate it, and in doing that, he injected sin into God's perfect creation. And all of creation, including ourselves, became corrupted, right? 
the desires within a man that, that should have been naturally oriented toward God got twisted and, and tweaked so that they're just pointed away from him now. We are born with these desires that point us, instead of towards God, they point us away from God. And that corruption, that flesh, is passed on from generation to generation through the seed of the man. And so because everyone is born into this life with, with bent desires, we're all, we're all going to struggle with this until we die or until King Jesus comes again. Just to, to build that out a little further, Paul gives us a sampling of what the flesh looks like. It's not definitive, but he gives us a list here in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. And here's what he says. <clears throat> the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, the flesh is such a powerful enemy because desire is stronger than reason. You guys get that? Desire always trumps reason. Our reason may tell us, if you want to lose 10 pounds, you should stop eating donuts. <laughs> then, that donut, it's placed in front of you, right? And it's glistening because of the sugars coating it, and you can smell it, and you just had some coffee. Wouldn't something sweet be really good with that? And, and it's just right there. I mean, I can see you. And all of a sudden, at that point, your desires have just conquered your reason. The only way to conquer desire is with greater desire. So when your desire to lose 10 pounds becomes greater than your desire to eat donuts, then you will be able to withstand the temptation. So the Christian life is partly about reorienting desires. And we'll look at that more closely in the next section when we start talking about weapons and strategies. But for now, let's look at the other enemy. So number, number one enemy, the flesh, the lust of the flesh within. Number two, spiritual forces of wickedness without. So let me give you a couple verses on that one. We've already looked at them, but I'm just going to say them again so we're all on the same page. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober in spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion searching for someone to destroy. Ephesians 6, 11, 12. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, I don't, I don't know you guys, and, but if I'm going to just speculate, I suspect that, um, that this battle probably seems more distant, um, less connected in our experience than the battle with the flesh. That one, that one we see and feel every day, this one's a, it comes across a little bit more ethereal. And for most of us, um, it's just not something we engage in that we are aware that we engage in in a day-to-day -day basis. And we live in this age that, that views the intersection of the spiritual and the physical really skeptically, right? This is the age of science and reason, and we're kind of done with the whole fairy tale things of the Bible and angels and demons and spiritual forces. That's just, that's just not really a part of our culture. And, and man, that's dangerous thinking to just write that off. Because Paul says here, that, that Ephesians 6 passage, 
when we're met with challenges, when we're met with struggles, when we're met with trials in this life, those aren't physical, not flesh and blood, not ultimately. Ultimately, we are wrestling with spiritual powers and wickedness. There is a spiritual reality all around us that underpins the physical experience, our physical lives. And most of us will probably never see it with our eyes in this lifetime. It doesn't mean it's not there. But this tendency to think that, you know, if, if I can't see it, then it's not there. And, and we here in the temporal, we're the center of the universe. Everything that's going on has got to be all about us, right? And that's not the case. We live in the world of effects and not the world of causes. The world of causes is spiritual and it underpins our experience. And for evidence of that, I would submit to you the story of Job. Hopefully most of you know the story of Job, but in a nutshell, God says to Satan, hey, have you checked out Job? He's pretty awesome. And Satan says, well, that's just because you give him everything. And God says, okay, take it all away. So he does, and Job still honors God. But if you consider that story from a human perspective, we look at his life and say, well, the reason the Sabaeans came in and killed his servants and stole all his cattle is probably because there was political unrest. And he probably had done a bad deal with the Chaldeans, and that's why they came and stole all his camels. And it was probably climate change that created the great <laughs> wind that knocked down the house and killed all his children. And I suspect that he got boils and sickness because he was an anti-vaxxer, right? He didn't believe in vaccines, and so it was his own fault. When in reality, God just wanted to prove a point to Satan. And all of the calamity in Job's life was a product of actions in the spiritual realm. The effect was very physical, but the cause was spiritual. Caveats. There's always caveats. There are those who think there's a devil behind every bush, right? They stub their toe and they say, oh, I must be spirit tormenting me. I'm not there. I don't subscribe <laughs> to that notion. I'm just submitting to you that we should be careful not to dismiss the warnings of Paul because some believers maybe get a little overly zealous about it. Now, I'm sure there's any number of different ways that Satan and his forces attack believers, and at times, those attacks, they may be full frontal assaults, right? They may be very overt. They may result in persecution. They may result in betrayal, all sorts of really imminent, physical, painful, terrible things. But my sense is that more often than not, he works subtly, whispering lies, poisoning minds, poisoning souls, poisoning entire cultures, taking captives through his deception, right? Because he is the father of lies. And that may be what Paul has in mind in Colossians 2.8, where it says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary spirits of the world, rather than according to Christ. You can see what Paul's describing right there, that battle. You can see that battle playing out since the beginning of creation. And, and we glanced on it. But let's go back and look at it again just for a minute here at the fall in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So he's laying this trap of philosophy, trying to create a, a, a worldview without God. He says, did God really say that? How ridiculous. Why would you want to serve a God that gets so worked up about fruit? That's ridiculous. Did he really say 
that wives should submit to their husbands? What an antiquated notion. Did he really say there's anything wrong with fornication, or divorce, or homosexuality, or, or, or? How legalistic is this God that you guys serve? And so the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat from the fruit in the garden. God just said, you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Satan replies, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And these are what Satan does, the empty deception and lofty speculations. That's what the passage in Corinthians says, empty deception and lofty speculations raised up against the knowledge of God. So the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And you know the rest. Now, though the battle was over a physical fruit, it was no doubt a spiritual battle, right? And the ultimate issue at, at issue there was who gets to define truth? God had given one provision and warned them that if they violated it, that they would die. And Satan convinced them, no, no, you can define truth for yourself. All of mankind ever since has experienced the fallout of that, as we saw previously. Part of that is the bent desires of the flesh. So this was the battle that wrecked creation. It's the battle going on now where he seeks to wreck redemption. Uh, we've already seen that those lofty speculations were raised against God in the Garden of Eden. Clearly they must have been an issue in, in Colossae, who Paul was writing this letter to, the Colossians. But here's the thing. Guys, I think that we are living in this unique time in history, which is a culmination of a demonically masterminded, multi-century plan to create an environment which results in mass spiritual casualties. That's the age that we are living in right now. Because remember, there are three areas in that Colossians 2.8 passage that were warned that we can be taken captive. Deceptive philosophies, traditions of men, and the elementary principles of the world. I don't want to get too deep into this, but let me just give you a few thoughts on how this plays out. The Enlightenment, the Enlightenment thinkers, remember that in the 17 and 1800s, that was the birthplace of the deceptive philosophies that are ripping our culture apart today. That was when they declared God is dead. And when they declared God dead, they also declared morality dead. And the concepts of authority, of consequence, of responsibility, of morality, those were all put on the shelf and were replaced with anarchy and entitlement and debauchery. They, they didn't know just how far that we would take it, but we've taken it pretty far, and there's, <laughs> there's only so much further we can go as a culture, right? There's, there's not that much worse we can get. Meanwhile, at the same time, the scientific revolution was taking place, explaining the elementary principles of the world, and they said, hey, we can do this apart from any spiritual cause. So for the however many millennia before that, if it rained, the natural thought was, well, there must be a God that decides when it rains and when it doesn't rain. The, the scientific revolution comes around and they say, no, it's just weather patterns. That's all that causes the rain. And in fact, we don't need God for that. And we don't actually need God for anything. We can explain everything in existence through science. So let's just let's get God out of there. Ask them where existence came from. They can't answer that one, but that's not science anymore. 
So this is all happening. The church starts to see the wheels are coming off the bus of society because Christians are part of society. The church usually follows the culture. And so they tried to compensate for this by building fences around the word of God, right? We're going to keep people safe. They created systems and traditions to try to keep people from being enticed by the scientists and the philosophers. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself, except that, and unless, what happens is in a lot of denominations, the systems and the regulations, the traditions, eventually took preeminence over the actual word of God, so that people became more devoted to the traditions of men than they did to the actual word of God. And if you want an example, you can go into a church today and you can have a woman elder that serves you communion, but she'll give you grape juice because their denomination has a prohibition against drinking alcohol. And they will fight to the death on that prohibition about alcohol, which is not a commandment in the Bible, all the while ignoring the commandments that are in the Bible, prohibiting women from being pastors and elders. Oh, I see the looks on your faces. It's possible that some of you cringe for me to bring up that example, even if in theory maybe you agree, but talking out loud about these kind of things makes you nervous. And if it does, then consider that as evidence of just exactly how effective Satan has been in the battle for our minds. That's so legalistic. Did God really say that? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Yeah, he actually did. Gender roles in the church and in marriage, those weren't questioned for the last 1,800 years. The idea that there existed an absolute standard of morality, that wasn't questioned for the last 1,800 years. The idea that a God, if not the God, but at least a God was the only reasonable explanation for the universe and for creation, that wasn't questioned for the last 1,800 years. But deceptive philosophies, traditions of men, um, elementary principles of the world, they've all converged together in this last century to create a minefield between us and God's truth. And I just, I submit to you that it is a meticulously crafted, intentional, evil plan, and it is exceptionally dangerous. It's a battlefield that's taken out the minds of our generation. Those who bring a picnic lunch to sit on the sidelines and watch this battle are done for. The influence is too broad, it's too powerful, you can't withstand it passively. It's like sitting on a beach watching a tsunami rushing towards you and going, yeah, it's probably just going to come up to my knees. I'll be fine until it washes over you and sucks you under. And then at that point, there's very little hope that, that you're going to get pulled out. So you are either taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ or else the thoughts which are the sworn enemies of Christ, the thoughts which are inspired by the spiritual forces of wickedness will be taking you captive. Okay. Next thing is how do we do that? How do we stand against the enemies of our souls? What's the battle plan there? So before we move into that, any questions or comments on the enemies? Yeah. You mentioned um, morality has been questioned. So the word always confused me, even though it's more basic, but that's kind of just right and wrong now we're seeing right and wrong challenge like never before? Yeah, I think, I think that throughout the ages, the question has been who gets to define right and wrong? 
That's always been the question. Now the question is, is there such a thing as right and wrong? Right? So even though people may not have been good, they at least accepted that there are good things and that there are bad things. I think that was basically universally accepted. Even among people that did the bad things, they would say, I recognize I'm doing bad things, but there are good things. Our generation says, that's stupid. There are no good things and there are no bad things. They're just things. It's just, really, it's just you. So you should just do whatever is the best for you. That's what I meant by that. All right, move on. We're together. All right. You guys are taking it easy on me. The weapons and the strategies. <clears throat> So, remember again here that two enemies, right? Lust of the flesh within, spiritual forces of wickedness without. And the strategy for victory against the two enemies is entirely different. They are not similar in any way. And so what I'm going to do here is we're going to look at some verses that pertain to the strategies for victories in both cases. And in both cases, I think what you'll see is a very common plan of attack in the battle for the flesh, and a different but also common plan of attack in the battle for against uh, spiritual forces of wickedness. So let's start with the verses about the battle against fleshly lusts. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. 1 Corinthians 10.14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 Timothy 6, 10-11. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But flee from these things, you man of God. 2 Timothy 2:22. Now flee from youthful lusts the unhealthy and unholy desires of our hearts. So how do we win the battle against fleshly lusts? Common thread here, right? Flee. Do not engage. That's the strategy in the battle for our fleshly lusts. And when I think of this, it reminds me of the story in Genesis 39. This is where, you remember, where, where Joseph is in Potiphar's house and he's taking care of things, and Potiphar's <coughs> wife is trying to seduce him, right? Come to bed with me. And she grabs hold of his cloak and he's like, forget that. And he drops his cloak and he runs out in his underwear. That's the image that I have when it comes to fleeing immorality. You don't dawdle. You don't goof around. You just drop the coat and you get the heck out of there. You can't dabble with it. You can't tinker with it. You can't just see just how close can I get to the edge here before you fall off. You simply flee. Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. What does that mean, make no provision for the flesh? Notice it doesn't say make very little provision for the flesh, or be careful if you're making provision for the flesh. Again, guys, over and over, absolute language, make no provision for the flesh. What does provision mean? What are the provisions? Well. Supply, equip, feed, nourish, right? If you're going to go into war, what do you take with you? You take your provisions. Don't take provisions for the flesh. Not even a little bit. Don't, don't give them an opportunity to destroy you. You can't feed the flesh, not even with the tiniest, smallest morsel. Because, gang, we all think we're stronger than we are. 
when it comes to this battle of the flesh. We're all idiots. You think, well, I can, I can click on that ad there on the side of my screen, and it's not that bad, and I'll, I'll just check it out, and then I'm going to come back to my homepage. Yeah, sure you will. I, I just need one drink when I get home, and I can cut it off after that. So I've had a long day, and I just need to... Well, fine, that's fine. Unless you happen to have a propensity towards overindulgence. Or, I'm just going to inflate this one category on my tax deduction, and I probably overpaid somewhere else anyway, and I, I won't do it again next year. Yeah, sure you won't. Provisions for the flesh. And guys, these lusts of the flesh, they are portioned differently to everybody. So, you know, your battle, your battle, and yours and yours and yours and mine, they're not all going to look the same. I have struggles that may not be an issue for you guys, and, and the same is true for you. You may have struggles that aren't things for me, but if there are areas in your life, lusts of the flesh, desires that are opposed to God, make no provisions for the flesh in that area. You just, you can't, tinker. You can't give an inch. You can't give a second to those things. All you need to do is flee. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh, that's making provisions, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That's Galatians 6, 7 and 8. And this is a key takeaway here, because ultimately, you cannot win this battle on your own. All right, I just want to acknowledge that. You cannot conquer the flesh by the flesh. You cannot stand against your hardwired desires in your own strength. You've got to have the Holy Spirit working through you doing that. And that's the message of Romans chapter 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh... Those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what do you do? You flee the desires of the flesh, and you run straight into the arms of Christ. You make no provision for the flesh. You don't sow to the flesh. You sow to the Spirit so that you will reap spiritual things. Philippians 4.8 says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. That is sowing to the Spirit. That is renewing your mind, Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to abide in the vine, like John 15. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So what do you do? You abide in the vine, you let his spirit flow through you, come out to you, and by that spirit, then you can put to death the deeds of the flesh. Now, Again, I just want to acknowledge, it's never totally dead. You do not kill the flesh in this life. You just manage it, right? You learn how to overcome. You learn how to gain victories. A Christian is not somebody that has conquered the flesh. That doesn't happen until our redeemed bodies, until we've been glorified. But a Christian is somebody that's engaged in the battle against the flesh. A Christian is not somebody that 
sits on the sidelines and doesn't worry about the desires of their flesh. So that's battle number one. Battle number two is different. The battle against Satan and his forces. We're given a different exhortation here. A couple of verses. I think this is the fourth time, but maybe we'll all have it memorized by the time we're done. <laughs> First Peter 5, 8, and 9. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. We've read this one three times. Ephesians 6.12 Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, stand firm. James 4.7 Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we're instructed to flee from fleshly lust, but when it comes to the spiritual battle, the battle against Satan and his forces, given a different instruction, and the instruction here is resist. And my question is why? And I think the answer is you can't outrun a roaring lion. If a lion is chasing you and you're running away, all you end up with is, is claws in your back. Your only hope of survival is to turn and engage in this one. You have to resist. Fortunately, again, you cannot do it in your own strength. You cannot possibly go toe-to-toe -to -toe with one of the strongest beings that God has ever created in your own strength. And therefore, God has provided us with a full set of armor so that we will be able to resist, so that we will be able to stand for His spiritual armor. Ephesians 6.14 Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So, the first piece of armor, I think it's really interesting, is gird your, your loins, the belt, put on the belt truth. As I mentioned, I, I feel like one of Satan's most effective weapons is lies, right? The insidious little lies. The big ones in culture, to be sure, and then the more subtle ones that just come in our head. I'm not, I'm not good enough. God could never love me. I'm this, I'm that. There is no hope. I'll never change. You can stand against that. You need truth. And God's given us his truth. It's, it's in the book, right? Then you put on the breastplate of righteousness and because you've already put on the belt of truth, you know the truth that your righteousness is not your own. So if he's attacking your righteousness, you know that God has said, no, no, no. They are righteous not because of anything they have done or haven't done. You are righteous only because they are covered in the blood of my son, Jesus Christ, who is ultimately worthy. That's the truth. So first we put on the truth, then we guard our hearts with the breastplate of righteousness. Then... You shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And Chris had mentioned this, but guys, there's just no shortcuts here. you got to do the work of getting into the book. you got to get to know the good news so that you can give it away to others. you got to be prepared with the gospel of peace. And then you take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And 
Remember that throughout the Bible, faith is the currency of heaven. Hebrews says, without faith, impossible to please God. But the one who acts in faith will be counted great as God counts greatness. And faith reminds us of things like, if the Lord is for us, who can be against us? Faith allows us to say things like Paul did in Romans 8.38. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, including Satan and his forces. The helmet of salvation reminds us that our future is secure, and whatever happens in this life, ultimately, is momentary light affliction, which is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That's 2 Corinthians 4.17. And finally, you take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And gang, this is our most powerful weapon. This is the weapon that Jesus himself used against the attacks of Satan his, while he was being tempted in the wilderness. And you know the story, but three times Satan comes to him and he tries to tempt him. He's trying to tempt Jesus. And each time, Jesus rebuffs that attempt by quoting scripture to him. He wields that sword, the sword of scripture, with precision and with accuracy and with skill. And if our Lord Jesus himself says, yeah, this is my main weapon, well, how much more so for the rest of us, right? And guys, I don't know how many of you are like familiar with swords. I've never held a sword. If I was going to go into battle right now, I wouldn't just walk out the door, pick up a sword, and be like, all right, let's go do this thing. Or you cut down before I made it to the elevator, right? You've you got to practice. You've got to become intimately familiar. You've got to learn the balance. You've got to learn how to parry and to twist. And that's, that's the same thing with the sword of the Spirit, with the Word of God. You've got to get familiar with it. You've got to know it. You've got to learn it. You've got to become, have it become a part of you by memorizing, by meditating, laying hold of that truth so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Don't think you can escape this battle for your soul. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Here's a promise for you. In this world, you will have trouble. But here's another promise. Take heart, I've overcome the world. That's a good promise. He also promises that the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 And if you want to tap into that strength, James 4.8 says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Guys, if you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, that's great. But guess what? That also means he's your Lord. Lord means king. It means he tells you what to do. He is the commanding officer. And life is not about maximizing your pleasure in the temporal. It's about preparing your soul for the eternal. So live like a soldier who is at battle, who is at war for his soul. 2 Timothy 2.4 No soldier engaged in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. That's an admonition for us. And finally, close this first section with Paul's admonition to the Corinthians. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. With that, close the first time. John Brady. Guys, uh, 
Uh, John Brady's uh, going to come up and share with us uh, a little bit of his uh, life testimony. John Brady. Good morning, fellas. Good morning. Good morning, John Brady. 